0: Um, has anyone here ever wished that you had a superpower before? Yeah, okay. Or like you've, maybe, maybe you've never taken it seriously, but you've at least thought about like, if I was able to have a superpower, what would it be? Right? I've actually been in a lot of like groups where that's like an icebreaker question. Where people ask, you know, okay, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? And you have all the traditional ones of, oh, I wish I could fly or, uh, you know, I want the invisibility or maybe a th- like I want to sh- be able to shoot fireballs or lightning or something like that. Um, Whatever, there's kind of an an endless list. Sometimes there's some really obscure ones. Uh, But, you know, these superpowers, obviously, they're only in in fairy tales, right? Uh, But in reality, God has actually given us something that's a lot better than any of the superpowers that I've heard people say in those icebreaker questions. You know, the scripture teaches us that God actually gives us immortality. And, and we don't always think of it through the lens almost as, as being a superpower, but I, I wanted to frame it this way just because um, I, I think we sell short the reality of the power that God has given us and what he wants to do in and through us. You know, I, I was hesitant even in some ways to open with the idea of talking about superpowers because I don't want to mix the, the truth of scripture with the fantasy of comic books and Marvel movies, right? Um, But in the end, I decided to go with it because I want us to have an elevated view of the power that God has given us. And I also did this because the power that fictional characters exercise in the movies or the comics or whatever it may be um, are readily apparent in their stories. As a matter of fact, it's like the whole story is generally shaped in some way by that power that this person has. Their lives are totally impacted by it. And you know, we aren't living in a fairy tale, but we do have a very real power that God has given us. And in the same way, it should shape everything about our lives. And so I intend to show this to you clearly through the scripture that we're going to be in today in 2 Corinthians 4, uh, 7 through five ten. 10. Uh, but before we get into that, I want to just pray together. <clears throat> God, I thank you that you are here with us this morning. Lord, I thank you that you're a God who gives gifts that I think are are better than what we um, even realize. Lord, that that you offer us something that's um, greater than what we oftentimes want to take advantage of. And uh, Lord, I just thank you that you have a a deep care and concern for us. Um, I thank you that you have a love for us. I thank you, Lord, that You choose to put your spirit in us. And you make us more like you. And so God, I pray that even in our time here this morning, you would be at work in that, that you'd make us more like you. Um, God, whatever burdens we came in here with today, I pray that you'd help us just to shed them at the foot of the cross. God, if we've come in um, just feeling worn down, if we've come in uh, just guilty of sin and weary of that, Lord, if we've come in apathetic, whatever it may be, I just uh, pray that you would direct our hearts and our minds towards you, and that you, Holy Spirit, I pray, would minister to us. So God, work through your word and its power, and uh, Lord, help us to uh, just be people that, that love you more when we leave this room than we did when we came in, that look like you more uh, when we leave this room than we did when we came in. Um, so we love you, and uh, we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. Okay, before we read the uh, main passage that we're going to be in today, I want to remind you a little bit of the context of where we are as we've been studying this book that we call 2 Corinthians, which is actually a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Corinth. And uh, in this letter, he's been doing a lot of work trying to defend his ministry and his character because there are these false teachers that have come into Corinth and have started to attack Paul's apostleship and attack some of the teaching that he had. And so, uh, as Paul has been defending himself, he's been giving us a really great picture of what a faithful Christian servant looks like. And last week, we saw that a faithful Christian servant is a member of the New Covenant. Now, uh, if that may be a new word, or new concept for you. I don't have time to get into the same detail I did last week. Uh, if you're interested in that, I encourage you to go online to our website, you can, or on Spotify, you can listen to the sermon I preached last week. Uh, but in short, the New Covenant is the relationship that God has made with Christians to forgive us of our sin and bring us into his family. And this covenant, which is a special relationship, was made possible by Jesus dying on the cross and pouring out his blood for our sins. So he died the death that we deserved, and not only is there forgiveness of sins in this new covenant, uh, but there's also a new birth that we experience entering into it. And God gives us his Holy Spirit and as the Spirit comes and dwells in us, He transforms us to be people that start to look more and more like Him. The Spirit opens up our eyes to truth and makes us uh, to be people that, that see God more clearly and reflect Him more clearly. And uh, with that in mind, we're, we're going to enter into our main passage for today, uh, starting at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. We read this. But we have this treasure... In jars of clay, to show that this all surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our moral body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore we speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit, So that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, Because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed, instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident, and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith and not by sight. that that's the main passage we're going to be working out of for today. And really, as I look at that, there's four basic statements uh, that I'm going to share with you that I think are, are summing up the main ideas of what Paul is trying to communicate in this passage. And the first is that God is powerful. The second is that on our own we're not powerful. The third is that God gives us His power. And the fourth is that God's power transforms our lives. Okay, so we're just going to work through those here. Uh, one by one. First, this idea that God is powerful. This is obviously a major theme throughout the Bible. It might almost seem like something, why are we even (laughs) talking about this? Of course, God is powerful. I think most of us work from a standpoint of this being kind of a given. But I don't want to skip over this, uh, because the power of God is one of those things that most of us, I think, take for granted, but don't really actually take a lot of time to meditate on. You know, it's like, yeah, we, we know it, but we don't really let the, the reality of that sink deeply into our mind and into our souls. And you know, his infinite power is shown in so many ways. We, we could preach a whole sermon series on that, uh, but just briefly, I want to, to let us meditate on that in a couple of different ways. The first is that his power is shown in creation. You know, uh, we started reading at verse 7, but if we were to read verse 6 right before this, uh, Paul actually kind of alludes to this idea of, of God's power in creation when he says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Now, of course, in that verse, he's talking about the metaphorical light that God shines in our hearts to help us see who he is. But in that beginning part where he says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, he's hearkening us to think back to this idea of, you remember how God created everything? Like he's literally the creator of light. You know how you know how God created light. He just said, "Let there be light," and it was there, right? Like that's some next level power. Genesis one three, and God said, "Let there be light," and there was light. When is the last time that you just like spoke something into existence? It, it, he he did that by the way before the sun and and the moon and stars and that stuff was even created. God God is a creator that has power that's honestly beyond anything that we can fathom. He has the power to just speak something into existence. He is the only thing that is eternal. Everything else has been made, like everything else had to be made by him. He doesn't have a, uh, something that made him, he just is eternal. We can't even get that, but that's who he is. And you know, not only is his awesome power shown through the reality of creation, but it's also shown in the resurrection of Christ. Not only does God have the power to create, but he has the power to overcome death. You see, death is a nasty enemy, takes out even the strongest of humans, name whatever great hero, whatever great warrior, great leader, whatever you can think of from the past, there's one enemy that none of them have been able to conquer, and that's death. No amount of intelligence, strength, or money can help you escape the inevitable decay of your body. But God is the giver of life, and he showed that he has power over death by raising Jesus from the dead. We see that in verse 14. He says, we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. We'll get into that second part later, but just this idea of, man, remember that God, not only did he create everything, but this one big problem that every single human has that we all know we're ultimately marching towards, he's able to overcome that too. He proved it at the resurrection. You know, we don't have this same kind of power. Right? Like, the immense power of God is actually all the more impressive when you compare it against the power that we have as human beings. And by the way, I'm not trying to trash humans here. As a matter of fact, we are really powerful creatures when you compare us against the other creatures that God made. Right? He made us the most powerful creatures on this planet. Yeah, there's some that are stronger than us or faster than us, but guess what creature it is that's ruling over this earth? We're the undisputed champs right? Like, and God God made us that way to do that. As a matter of fact, he gave us this mission to be uh, fruitful, multiply, increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. He wants us to rule over these creatures. He's made us in his image as, as little rulers that do that. So yeah, if you compare us to the rest of creation, we look really powerful, and I think that sometimes that might go to our heads. But don't let your power go to your head, because despite the high position that God's given us in creation, we are still actually pretty weak in a lot of ways. We see in verse 7 uh, of chapter 4 that we're called jars of clay. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Um, I'm not really into pottery, but I know that clay jars are not very strong. <laughs> I don't know what kind of new technologies has maybe been developed, but I, I feel like if you drop a clay pot, it usually breaks. Uh, and certainly in this time, that would be the case as well. Um, we have all sorts of vulnerabilities that cause us to struggle in life. We are powerless, oftentimes, to control many of the things that go on around us. And these kind of things can cause us some real pain. Uh, Look at all the ways, for example, that Paul even communicates the weakness and vulnerability that he experienced. In this uh, very passage, we see that he had a lot of struggles. That that he was subject to being someone who's just a human. He was hard-pressed he says, right? This communicates the idea of being backed into a corner. I don't know exactly what Paul was thinking about when he wrote this idea of being hard-pressed, but he was definitely a guy that knew what it was like to be found in a tight spot where you're getting closed in. On matter of fact, there was one time that he had to escape a city in a basket. Um, Being a human, you might find yourself in some difficult situations that you don't know how to get out of. He was perplexed, the text says. Sometimes uh, he didn't know what was going on, can anyone relate? <laughs> I know I'm perplexed. I, I hate being perplexed. Of all the things that frustrate me, I think like working off of inadequate information or not being able to understand a situation is probably like up there near the top. Um, I, I I want to make good decisions off of lots of information, and just oftentimes I'm limited in what I'm able to gather. And uh, man, that's just part of the reality of being human. I'm not omniscient. I'm so limited in what I'm able to gather. He was persecuted, right? Paul had real enemies that caused him real problems. He was no stranger to being arrested, beaten. Uh, He had murder plots that were formed against him. That was why he had to escape the town in a basket that I referenced earlier. He says that he was uh, struck down. Uh, You know, obviously, he was even literally struck down. Like, there are times he was beaten and flogged. And, you know, he talks about always being given over to death, which I think that you can see that by now that this is a guy that found himself on the brink of that on multiple occasions and you know you're, you're you may not have been through all the same experiences as, uh, as Paul but you can re- relate to all those same experiences you're subject to being hard-pressed or perplexed you know you're, you're subject to being persecuted to being struck down and you know that that death is something that's always a possibility All these come with the reality of being human, of being the jars of clay that we are. You know, our bodies are also described as tents in this passage. Jars of clay aren't very strong and neither are tents, okay? Uh, They can keep the rain out and that's about it. Um, They they won't stand up against a bear. Uh, But, you know, even if this body doesn't get killed by people who might be trying to persecute you or something like that, there's also this simple reality that it's wasting away. Even the strongest of us really don't last that long. Moses wrote this in in one of the few psalms that he wrote, Psalm 90, 10. It says, our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow for they quickly pass and we fly away. What's 70 or 80 years in light of eternity? Remember, God has no creator. He's just eternal. Even the strongest of us get 70, 80, maybe 100, 110 years if you're like on the absolute peak. And even over the course of these years, we face all kinds of trouble that we can't control. We might like to think that we're strong, but in reality, we're actually pretty weak. And you know, all this stuff that's listed here isn't even an exhaustive list of our weaknesses. Not only do we have these physical ones, but we have mental and spiritual ones too. We struggle with sin even when we don't want to. We're not even able to live up to to God's standards, much less the own standards that, that we might have for our own behavior. think we find ourselves falling short of it does anyone else here ever feel the depth of what it's like to be a jar of clay (laughs) I know I do I know that I feel that weakness not just on a physical level but even more so on a spiritual level so often and so when we look at this weakness especially in relation to God's power we have to ask why is it that we have a tendency to become so arrogant and so prideful Why do we think so highly of ourselves when in reality we are so limited? It's a humbling experience to compare ourselves to the power of God. But it's also helpful because it puts a proper perspective on things. When we come to see our weakness in the light of God's power, that helps us come to realize that we are totally in need of God. And, you know, we see this a little bit in this passage, but also in some of the other passages that we've read as we've been preaching through 2 Corinthians, that Paul's saying, any of the good stuff I've done, it's all God's power working through me. We realize that we're not able to do anything really of value on our own, certainly not of spiritual value. And, you know, our weakness also shows us who's boss, that he is. We have absolutely no power to oppose God. You know, uh, there are all sorts of, of people that can oppose us and struggles that we can come against that are no laughing matter, right? Like we saw Paul was going through some really serious tr- uh, struggles. God doesn't get hard-pressed, perplexed, y- y- struck down. Th- these kind of things don't happen to him. If, if somebody wants to oppose God, you know what he does? Laughs. Right? Psalm 2, 1 to 4 actually says this, right? Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. <laughs> this is like your six-year-old nephew saying he's gonna beat you up. Like it's there, there's we have no power to oppose God. None. And and frankly, we have no room to question him or put him on trial. I think that we uh, come from this this mentality sometimes where where we want to be the people that judge whether we like the decisions that God's making or not, whether we like the way that he set things up to be or not. We'll be the judge of it. We have no room to do that, okay? Uh, Job learned that the hard way. You read this long book, Job, and there's a lot of terrible things that happened to him, even when he didn't do things that were wrong. And he's going through all this, like, if only I could talk to God, if only I could plead my case. And so finally, God speaks to Job at the end of the book, and he starts off by by saying this, uh, Job chapter 38, verses 4 to 5. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? And he goes on and on and on to show Job all these kind of things where he doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. He wasn't there for any of this. He he has no room to question God and his infinite power and wisdom. And and by the end, after God kind of takes him through all this kind of stuff, Job just is like, yeah, I was totally out of my lane. I had no idea what I was talking about. We act sometimes like we have a right to judge God when we don't like the way that something happens or when we don't like a command that he's given. Guys, we we don't have the wisdom or the perspective to do that. We would be much wiser to simply accept his greatness, his power, and his goodness and submit ourselves under it rather than trying to rail against it and get our own way. You know, God, of course, being so much more powerful than us could treat us really in whatever way he likes. He doesn't owe us anything. He's not obligated to be good to us. He can, he can totally crush us if he wants to. And frankly, our, the penalty for sin is death. It's, it it's, would be well within his rights to give that to us. But God, because he's good, doesn't choose to operate that way. Instead, what he does is he makes this new covenant that we talked about at the beginning where he gives us the opportunity to be forgiven. And not only does he give us the opportunity to be forgiven, but he puts that power that he has inside of us. Now, not in every single way. As Christians, there's still many ways in which we're much, much weaker than God. But he does start to invest some of this in us, right? This is crazy. Look at, go back to verse 7 about us being jars of clay. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. God puts his treasure inside of us. The, the all-surpassing power of this God that we've been talking about puts that inside of these weak little jars of clay. Strange receptacles for such a great treasure. I don't know about you, if I had treasure that great, I, I don't think I would be keeping it in something as weak as a, a jar of clay. I would want one of those nice-looking treasure chests like from a pirate movie. Got a nice lock and key. No, but it's us, frail little us. That he decides to invest his power in. And you know, this is actually really cool because that God choosing to invest his power in us, these jars of clay, is a win-win. It's a win for God. Why? Because the weakness of the vessel allows him to display his glory even more, right? And that, that's actually what the passage uh, talks about. Um, he, he's put this, in, this, this power in these weak jars of clay so that we can see that this power is from God. Like, there's no way that you could look at us and and think that we're able to do some of the things that we're actually able to do in our own power like that we'd be able to overcome death which is going to happen like if you're Christian you're going to be raised with the Lord's eternal life you know or, or even just things like the spread of the gospel and the way that that's gone across the planet and transformed so many hearts and all these kind of things who would think that we could do that it's God's mighty power working within us you know think of it this way in sports which shows the greatness of an athlete more? Which is more impressive? If a a really good athlete goes to a team that's already stacked and wins a championship with them, like Kevin Durant did with the Warriors? (coughs) Or is it way more impressive if you're a really great player and you go to a team that's garbage and you're so good that you end up turning that team into a championship team, like LeBron did with Cleveland? Like, that's a lot more impressive, Right? Like, that, that's a lot more impressive, because the, the weakness of what's around you is what's, what starts to show the greatness. And that's what God does by putting his treasure in us jars of clay. But obviously, it's not just a win for God, it's a win for us, too. Because in that, we have the power now to persevere through all of these other kind of weaknesses that would generally do us in. Right? And that's why when we see in verses 8 and 9, Paul talks about it. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed perplexed, that's the jar of clay side, but not in despair, right? Because the treasure that's within him. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. You see that because of this treasure that's within us, even though that, that weak jar of clay aspect allows us to be harmed on in all of those, uh, those earlier ways, the treasure within us allows us to persevere in all of the, the things that he says as well. power of God is what sustained him. Look at some of these other statements. Verse 16, he says, therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. You know, it would be be easy to lose heart in the midst of all the troubles that he was going through, right? Like, not just all the physical stuff, but even remember, these are his friends that he led to the Lord that he's literally having to defend himself against, because there's false teachers that have come in trying to, re, uh, to ruin his reputation. That would hurt. But in all this, God is renewing him day by day. And it's this, this renewing with the Holy Spirit that, that uh, sustains us each day that I think allowed him to be the kind of guy that when he gets thrown in prison, he's, what's he doing? Singing hymns. right? He's not trying to tunnel his way out. Look at this. Acts 16, 23-25. After they had been severely flogged, They were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Huh? Who's singing hymns to God when they're put in the prison and their feet are in stocks? Most people aren't. It would have to be someone that's being renewed day by day by the power of the Lord. You know, I believe this is why he was able to write that we should rejoice always and give thanks in all circumstances. He wrote this at the end of First Thessalonians. He says, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. The renewing power of God allows us to get up each day and face it with joy, regardless of whatever stands in our way. And this is a real treasure. And you know what? Even if we don't wake up the next day, that's fine too. It's actually a win for us since God has given us eternal life. And we see that communicated here in this passage. Look at chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. For we know that if the earthly tent, that's this body, we live in is destroyed, killed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. It's like, yeah, th- this, this body is going to die at some point. But we're going to get resurrection bodies. Like, we're going to get new bodies that, we get to, that, that aren't perishable and weak the same way that these ones are. And so we, we see this again in 2 Corinthians 5.8. He says, we are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. The Christian view of death is so interesting, right? Because we can actually look at it as something that, that isn't something to be feared as the end of everything, but it's actually a gateway into something better. And I don't say that as an empty platitude, right? Like, I think that we say things like that when we want to comfort each other at funerals. But most of us don't live with that actual reality, right? It's like somebody dies, we don't know what to say, and uh, we, we hope that they've passed into something else. So we say, oh, they're in a better place. But how many of us that say that actually believe that? How many of us actually believe that death is a gateway into something that's, that's better? Because Paul did. He lived his life that way. And that's why he was able to go on and, and subject himself to all these different kinds of dangers, being obedient to the Lord, because he truly wasn't scared of it. Matter of fact, he knew that it was preferable. I don't think most of us actually live that way. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm preaching to myself here, too. Like, I realize there's, I, I know these promises of God, but actually, like, owning them, believing them, and living in them is something different. Of course, we don't seek death out intentionally. Remember, he's the guy that escaped in a basket. Like, he wasn't just trying to die. There were plenty of people that wanted to kill him. We, ha- we have our time on this earth that God has called us to faithfulness and obedience, and we don't know when our time may come. But when it does, it's actually the gateway into something that's even better, truly not just as in a trite saying that that tries to make people feel better when they're grieving you know i told you that god gave us uh this superpower of immortality right and and, and this is what's being communicated here this idea that even in death we actually get to be clothed with something that's even better And just as that, that superheroes have their power that shapes their lives, the way they live, and the things that they do in their communities, guess what? This power of immortality that we have is something that should shape our lives and the way that we interact with our communities as well. Something that transforms our lives. The treasure that God places within us should absolutely transform the way that we live. You know, Paul doesn't, actually it explicitly define what the treasure is, uh, but that, that's been put in these jars of clay. But what he was talking about right before this suggests that the treasure is all the benefits of the new covenant, including the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the knowledge of God's glory, the promise of eternal life. And so with this, we see the world differently now. It changes the way that we live. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, he says, for we live by faith. Not by sight. We live by faith, not by sight. This life of faith is very different from the one that's lived by sight. Okay, and here are some of the ways. First off, the, the life of faith doesn't fear man. The person who's living that way does not fear man. We saw this in Jesus, right? Like Jesus was not scared of anybody. Matter of fact, Pilate was like totally shocked by that when he was on trial. Jesus like wasn't even trying to defend himself. He's like, don't you know that I have the power to crucify you? He's like, you wouldn't have any power if it wasn't given to you. There's a a certain confidence that that we can walk with in this world, even knowing that there's there's really not much that can be done to us, right? Paul summed this up in Romans 8.31. He said, if God is for us, who can be against us? there's no man that's going to really be able to do, the worst they can do is is end our lives or torture us or something like that, but in the grand scheme of eternity, what does that really do to us? We can't be kept down. This is where our invincibility superpower comes in, right? Like, we're connected to the one that's all-powerful, and there's no kryptonite that can stop him. And so we have to ask, like, man, is, is the fear of man holding you back in your life? Because if fear of people is something that's holding you back in your life, then that's evidence that you're walking by sight and not by faith. And so if you identify that, may, may you be someone that, that really tries to press into the promises of God that are being communicated here and throughout all of Scripture, that we'd be people that really start to let our faith define us more than what we see. Because when we look around us, things can look kind of scary and intimidating sometimes. But when we walk by faith and we set our eyes on Jesus, all of a sudden those things aren't so scary anymore. And so, you know, the the, the person who walks by faith and not by sight does not fear man, but he does fear God. Look at it. Jesus said this in Matthew 10, 28, when he was sending his disciples out to go and do ministry. He told them, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In the words of Jesus, we live with the knowledge that he is real, and that judgment is real. This is something that should play a factor in our lives as Christians, right? Paul even says in in 2 Corinthians 5.10, the last verse of our main passage, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. Now, if you've come to age 12 for any period of time, you've probably heard hear, heard me preach the gospel consistently, talking about how we're saved by grace and not not by our works, right? Like we're saved by our faith, not not by our works, and that's very true. Like that's absolutely the teaching of the New Testament. That that's that's the reality of the New Covenant. Um, so so what's going on here in verse ten, where, where Paul is still he's writing to Christians, and he says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, right? Like even for us as Christians who have had our sins forgiven in some way we're still going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now uh, there's a couple different theories on what might be communicated here. First off, there's no doubt that even as Christians, although our sin is absolutely forgiven by Jesus Christ on the cross, there is still such a thing as heavenly reward. Like what, what you do in the body, even as a Christian, still matters a lot. You know, Jesus told us, for example, Matthew 6, to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Why would he tell us to do something that we can't do? Like, there, there clearly is an opportunity to be able to do something like that. We see different levels of reward in the parable of the talents, where the guys came back with different amounts of, of money that they'd made with what was given to them, and they actually have different rewards that are given to them in light of that. Um, th- this is a hard concept. It's a hard concept for me, because I, th- when, I when I think about living in the greatness of uh, the glory of God, I, I don't really understand how heavenly reward works. It, it's still something I don't feel like I have a great grasp on, but it, it's there, like, like, we're going to, to still be evaluated for the kind of work that we did in this body, and the other thing that I would say here, too, is, yes, we are absolutely saved by faith and not by works, but sometimes, because we, we put such an emphasis on that, I think that we run the danger of separating faith and works more than what the Bible ever actually designs them to be separated as, okay, because real faith cannot help but be connected to good works. It, they, they cannot exist a- apart from one another. And this is one of the things that James is even gets at a lot in his book. Um, but you'll see that, man, if, if you were a person that actually has faith, you're going to be a person that actually has works. And if you don't have works, then you don't have actual faith. And so I don't know if, if Paul is maybe even trying to communicate that aspect here of like, that the works that you have are going to be reflective of the faith that you actually had in Christ as well. But regardless of whatever arguments there may be about this, this verse, one thing is clear, like what we do in this body matters a lot, and it matters to God, and we're going to have to answer to him. And so rather than us being people that are so scared of what people think, which I think is what generally we're thinking about, is how other people think of us, really the one that matters is, what is God thinking? Like, how is God evaluating the way that I'm making my decisions, spending my time, you know, any of those kinds of things? That's the one that matters. We don't fear man in the life of faith, but we do fear God. And in fear, I don't mean in the sense of fear like he's going to smite us or something. We know that we're forgiven in Christ, but I mean that in the sense of we revere him, we respect him, and we hold his opinion at a high level. You know, <clears throat> In the life of faith, when we live by faith and not by sight, we also are people that persevere through difficulty. In uh, chapter 4, verses 16 to 18, he says, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, <coughs> yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. When you live by faith, whatever earthly problems you're going through look light and momentary in the grand scheme of eternity. And and I don't say that to trivialize the problems of anyone in this room, okay? It's not me that wrote it. God, God inspired Paul to write this, okay? And the thing is, Paul was a guy that knew a lot of serious troubles, right? Probably more so than what most of us or maybe even any of us have experienced in this room. But he even is able to write that even the kind of troubles that he was going through, right? Like being severely flogged and locked up, just as an example for one of them, is literally light and momentary compared to the eternal glory that far outweighs them all. You see, the person of faith is not... Uh, constantly a slave to circumstances or or or, uh, dejected by the things when they don't go well here because we have perspective where we realize that there's really nothing that can happen to us that's that bad in this life when we have an eternal home with the Lord secured and so that helps us to persevere through whatever difficulty you might be going through you know, as people of faith, we also uh, serve and sacrifice for the good of others. He wrote in uh, chapter 4, verses 11 to 12, <clears throat> For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Why was it that Paul and his friends were going through all of these kind of troubles? It wasn't because he was choosing to sit at home and keep to himself. Matter of fact, the only reason this was happening is because he wouldn't shut up about Jesus. So he'd go around and consistently preach, and what that did was create a lot of trouble for him. But he was okay with that. He was, he was okay with what he, what he says is uh, carrying around with them or, or being uh, given over to death for Jesus' sake. That's fine. Because as he's doing that, his life is being revealed in his mortal body. How? That power is being exhibited through Paul through the way he lives and through the preaching of the gospel. And so death is at work in him in the sense that, yeah, there's people that are constantly bringing him to the brink of death, but life is at work in you. Because they're getting to hear the gospel and be transformed by it. You know, we need to be people that that walk by faith and not by sight so that we're not so self-focused. When we walk by sight, that is when we tend to be really self-focused. We only see the things that are immediately around us and how they're going to impact us and benefit us. But when we walk by faith, we start to have a bigger picture where we see what God has called us to. We start to love him in a different way and we start to love people in a different way, right? Because if we're people of faith, we start to have eyes for people the way that God does. And he treasures them a lot more than we do. And so, do you have the attitude that's willing to serve and to sacrifice for others, even in the little things? If you don't, that's evidence that you're walking by sight and not by faith. If you do, great. That's evidence that, that you're walking by faith and not by sight. And finally, as people that walk by faith and not by sight, we make it our aim to please Him. 2 Corinthians 5.9 says, So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. When we live by sight, we will probably be living to please somebody else. Right, like it's it's maybe might be yourself, might be the guy or girl that you like, maybe it's your parents, your employer. I don't think anyone else has children aside from me in this room, but whatever. If you do at some point, maybe your children. There's all sorts of different things that or, or people that we might live our lives trying to please. And you know that's that's not entirely bad. I hope we do try to please other people on some level, but ultimately the one we should actually be trying to please is God. And the only way you're going to live that way is if you walk by faith, because otherwise it's a lot easier to live in a way where you're trying to please the people that you see on a daily basis. We, we don't see God on a daily basis. I, I can't look at him with my eyes. That's why I'm walking by faith and not by sight. But when that faith is what's directing me, I see how pleasing him is so much more important than any other figure that I may want to please in this world. So as you can see, the life of of faith is very different than the life of walking by sight. And so I want to ask you, man, like just how much is your life directed by faith rather than by sight? How about your career choice? You know, the, the person that you're trying to date or marry, the way that you spend your free time, the way that you spend your money, the way that you think about your future, the goals that you have, how much of that is being directed by faith, and how much that is being directed by sight? God has has given us this incredible treasure, right? Remember what we talked about this morning. God is powerful on our own. We are not. God has given us his power, and that power should transform our lives, to make us people that are actually walking by faith and not by sight, that exhibit the kind of benefits that Paul exhibited in his life. And so <clears throat> this is convicting for me. I mean, I know like so oftentimes I find myself walking by sight. I find myself selling out, trying to, to pursue sin or, or just selfishness or whatever else it may be. Um, but, but this is one of the things that we're here together as a community to do, right? Because we can't just look at God. I can't just see him with my eyes right now. But what, what we do when we come together and we read his word and we worship and, and we meet up with each other and we, we live in community, one of the things that we're helping do is encourage each other on in the faith to help us see something that's kind of, we can't just see with our own eyes. And so may we be a community of people that's actually transformed by the power that God gives us, by the treasure that he puts in these jars of clay. May we be people that walk by faith, and not by sight. Uh, let's pray. <clears throat> Um, God, I thank you uh, that you do put your treasure in jars of clay. God, that, that you um, put an all-surpassing power in us that allows us to go through all the difficulties of this life but not be overcome by them, and knowing that like, even death is not able to overcome us. Yeah, there, this, this perishable body is going to die at some point, but we're going to be clothed with immortality. And so, Lord, we thank you that you're the giver of eternal life. Thank you that you're the the giver, the spirit, God, that you give yourself to us. And, uh, God, we just pray that you would continue to help us walk faithfully, live faithfully. God, we repent of our sin. We repent of being so self-focused and so stuck on uh, just pursuing only the things that we can see. At least I I I confess that, God, and I want to repent to that. Um, And Lord, I just ask that you would uh, turn our eyes on you, and just as the author of Hebrews said, like, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Um, Help us to run this race before us with endurance. Uh, We love you so much, Lord, and we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen.